Hi friends, welcome to the Wide Awake International Podcast. This is a place where we share stories of bringing hope, love, and dignity to our friends with disabilities here in Ukraine. I'm Kim, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. Say hi. Hi. This is Jed, my husband, the other half of the founding of Wide Awake International. And I wanted him with me today because he's way smarter than me about all things political and... Yeah, we had planned to share on in our third episode more of like the origin story and the beginning of our life here in Ukraine. But then we realized as more and more news came down the pipeline and more and more people were checking in with frantic emails asking if we were safe, that we could no longer ignore the elephant on the border. We have a bear on the border. <laughs> So today we wanted to talk to you about what's going on here in Ukraine in regards to Russian aggression. We wanted to talk about what's actually happening and what led up to this point, how it's affecting our city, our village, our way to way community here, and what is our response and our plans as best as we can plan in a time like this. And before we go any further, I just want to say a little disclaimer that we obviously are not Ukrainian. We're Americans. We have U.S. passports. And so we will never try to pretend that we can fully understand the mind of Ukrainian people, what it is to be a Ukrainian here in Ukraine right now. All we can talk to you about is the discussions we've we've had with our Ukrainian friends and how it feels for us being people in Ukraine that are committed to living here long term. Our boys are our family and they're Ukrainian. And so... We feel like we are deeply entrenched in this. We are deeply a part of this, but we can't ignore the fact that we're Americans. So we're just speaking from that perspective. So when we say what Ukrainians are thinking or how they're feeling, this is just what people have told us. But we can better accurately speak to what we're feeling and thinking. So I guess I'm going to jump into a little history, at least recent history of what has led Ukraine and Russia to this point. But before that, I want to encourage you to seek out Ukrainian voices when you read your news. It's uh, it's really wild, actually, how the Ukrainian voice has basically been left out of the entire conversation concerning her future. We hear a lot about what the West wants, what Russia wants, what the West plans to do, what the West thinks, how the West will respond. But the voice of Ukraine has largely been ignored, or at least not sought out. There's a great article about this in the Kiev Independent, which we'll link to in the show notes. Read news written by Ukrainians. Seek out Ukrainian news sources. Like all countries, it's important that Ukraine is a strong country and should be the decider of our own future. Uh, there's a phrase, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. So back to a bit of recent history. We moved in 2013, and uh, it was November 2013, and at the same time, we moved a few weeks after a revolution started. A uh, revolution of dignity is what it became known as. Um, it started with university students protesting when the current president, Yanukovych, had uh, turned back his whole platform for running for election, was a pro-European platform, and he had turned towards Russia and shut down all the plans for uh, unification with the European Union. Uh, and so students just started protesting in the center of Kiev um, and Independence Square. And so when Maidan is actually just square, that's what it means. So students started protesting. Peacefully. Peacefully, yeah. They were just holding signs, hey, we're, we're for Europe, you know. Um, and But 
they just stayed and they stayed all night and all day and they just pe- more people kept coming and more people kept coming on the 30th uh the police the the special forces for the president uh came in and were going to clear the maidan the reason they said it was cuz they wanted to put up christmas decorations but they came in violently beating students and people went missing that night that i i believe there's still some that haven't ever been um found but people were staying around the clock there was rallies um after that um instead of shutting it down protesters keep kept coming and more people kept coming and they just filled the square and they filled all of downtown and they took over office buildings and it was it was really crazy to watch this while we were here at the time we had just moved here we were watching and you could watch live feeds on a few different online news channels and so people were putting live feeds so i remember we'd put the kids to bed and then turn on the live feeds just to see what's going on and um, Although we understood nothing, yeah, we didn't understand the language, but you couldn't really hear the language because it was just it'd be like a a camera that was up on top of a building yeah. that you're seeing what's happening. After that beating, they were demanding that Yanukovych resign. People stayed around the clock, like I said, and um, every weekend there'd be a big gathering, and sometimes it'd be up to eight hundred thousand people all crammed in the center. I had gone a couple times over the the entire protest just to see what it was like. It's very interesting. Early on, it was had such a feeling of. of excitement people like standing up for their rights and their freedom and what they wanted and um and oh, it was grandmas coming yeah everybody was coming making tea bringing stuff to help each other and it was um it was really really neat to be there um but then it uh it really started to get uh violent people were getting hurt and disappearing on uh February on on February 20th there was an unprovoked attack um it was finally they were going to clear my dawn they started shooting on the peaceful protesters and i remember uh i was watching these live feeds and you're just watching all these people that you had watched over the last 3 months like they're just being shot and it's not a movie it's actually happening and so these people um chose to put their bodies in the way of the rest of their Ukrainian brothers and sisters mothers and fathers and um 101 were killed um they're called the heavenly 100 yeah the heavenly 100 and it's just it was so sad to, to see that um and it was also crazy to think okay like we live in a country where the president special forces are just shooting Yep. unarmed protesters yep. like we're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was during that time that we developed a um an exit strategy like if if the unrest continues and things continue to stabilize like what's our red line and and what will we do how will we we get out and at the time, you know, we didn't have a car or anything. It was just our family we hadn't adopted Vladik yet. Um well, it was like why would we leave like we just yeah. got here. Yeah. <laughs> we literally just got here. Yeah. Um but we still had a plan and yeah. if if we needed we we had that plan. Um So on February 21st after that shooting, um opposition leaders and Yanukovych came to an agreement that would de-escalate the crisis. Uh the agreement was signed by foreign ministers of Poland, France and Germany it was called for a new presidential elections 10 months later. 10 months later. Yeah. After that. A return to the 2004 constitution limiting uh, presidential power and a new amnesty law. The deal was presented to the Maidan, the people that were protesting later that evening, and it was not well received. It was just booze. 
One young protester climbs over the fence that's kind of guarding the stage where all these politicians are, and he stands up, he grabs the microphone, and he threatens Yanukovych. He says, um, our brothers and sisters just died. If you're not out of office tomorrow, we're coming for you. By 10 a.m. tomorrow morning, yep, you have resigned. And he just drops the mic and walks off stage. It was, it was so powerful. The next morning, Yanukovych was gone. He had fled. He'd fled. And uh, it's reported that he had with him taken some something like $32 billion in gold and fled to Russia. It's like, it's like a James Bond movie or something. It was so crazy. Um, <laughs> you can tour his old house. Yep. His whole, old, and there was like, there's like a zoo. Yep. And well, he people, had a zoo there. They yeah. just had to keep the animals alive. So people, now it's a zoo. <laughs> people go there like to check it out. But I remember people... Like storming into his residence after he left and being like, "What?" Like just in shock, like he was living like that. It's yeah. a crazy town. Yeah, it was very crazy. In the aftermath of that, Russian forces um, moved in in eastern Ukraine as well as in Crimea, which is, if you don't understand the geography of Ukraine, it's this large peninsula at the bottom so- southern part of Ukraine. It's beautiful. There's mountains. It's it's all coastline in the Black Sea. And it's just a beautiful part of Ukraine. And Russian forces, without any um, flags or any sort of information. Little uh, green men. Um, they called them green men because <laughs> they had no signage. Uh, they just moved in uh, with lots of lots of military equipment and, uh, and just took over um, all of Crimea. And at the time, you know, Ukrainians' military was in no position. Their navy was no in position to defend themselves. At the time, every every president, every every new regime just depleted the military and, and tried to meet their own needs, and um, just a very corrupt uh, time in these first 20 years of Ukrainian life. Since then, um, it's been a proxy war uh, since 2014. And so our whole time here, all we've known is war. Um, in that time since 2014, uh, 14,000 Ukrainians have been killed, and 1.5 million have been internally displaced due to the war and land annexation. It's always been in the background for us. It's worsened the economy, it's put the country in a general state of unrest, but it's not necessarily part of our everyday life for most people. It's mm-hmm. just, it's there. That's what's always been happening. So while it's very interesting and it's all in the news right now in the West, this has just always been happening. And um, it's kind of like when the, when the first frost sets in, Russian troops come to the border, and that's been our normal for since we've been here. Yeah, it's not like for Ukrainian people, all of a sudden, oh, like Russia's at our borders because Ukraine has been at war with Russia for eight years. It's yeah. just that the rest of the world stopped talking about it. Yeah. There's a lot of other things going on in the world to talk about. I know, but <laughs> for us, this is an important thing, yeah. and no one's talking about it yeah. until now. But yeah, that just gives you a bit of a context about, yes, this is really serious what's happening now, but it's not, it didn't come out of nowhere. As you know, in the news, you're all reading it. It's the only thing whenever you turn on the computer, there's an estimated 100,000 troops that have been deployed on the borders of Ukraine. Uh, Russia has been moving military troops, surface-to-air missiles into Belarus for joint military exercises. The difference between then and now, um, and even uh, back in November and some of the other troop buildups, is that it would be troop buildups 
Um, but there wasn't the infrastructure coming, and, and you weren't seeing a, a lot of the weapons that were coming to the border. And so the West uh, didn't really respond to that bluff, but um, the bluff's just got to get stronger now. And so, um, and so now there's, there's weapons and even little details that, that make it seem much more serious. Contracts with medical mobile um, units uh, with Belarus for six months with another three-month extension, kind of a thing, infrastructure pieces like that that sound a lot more like uh, there's a plan in place. It's not crazy for Putin to think that, that he can do this because he's already done it. He, him and his regime took Crimea and they've been fighting a proxy battle in the east since 2014 and the West didn't do much when that happened, there was there was none of the response that they that the West had promised with uh, nuclear dearmament and all that kind of stuff. Um, when Ukraine gave up its nuclear warheads, you know the West said that we would protect your borders and and um, and that didn't happen. That promise didn't follow through. And so, if if the West didn't keep up with their promise before, why would they do it now? So it's not really crazy. Um, to, uh, to think that uh, he wouldn't do more. So how is this affecting our city, our village? We live pretty close to a city. Our kids go to school in the city. And I, over the last couple of weeks, have been getting these notifications from the Department of Education, from our city council, that there have been these bomb threats, like hearing that they evacuated the mall because of a bomb threat. They evacuated this store because of a bomb threat. And then there was bomb threats towards schools, preschools, like a lot of them. And I thought that was just our city. I was like, that's weird. And they all turned out to be fake. And then I learned that that's actually been happening all over Ukraine. More than 3,000 facilities have been threatened with a bomb um, over the last month, few last few weeks. Mm. And the Ukraine State Service for Emergency Situations says... Today, we can confidently state that the series of sham bomb threats is nothing but an element of hybrid aggression and a pre-planned information operation. The purpose of this information terrorism is to keep Ukrainians tense and instill security or instill insecurity, carrying it out not as a terrorist act, but as a possibility for it to happen. Therefore, the main point is to stay calm. <laughs> also, a couple weeks ago, like 70 government websites were hacked and they they people think that that was a russian thing. So those things are happening in the city. But otherwise, like life here just goes on. You know, I don't think I have to tell you that life is different in Ukraine. Like but I I have to tell you that life is different in Ukraine. It just takes a lot more to make everyday life happening. There are a lot of conveniences that have been introduced even in the last eight years that we've lived here, mm. but it's still, it's just, you know, government infrastructure stuff. Nothing is set up to make life easier for you. Mm. That's not, that just isn't a part of life here. It just takes a lot to get through the days, to make life happen. And so Ukrainian people can't just pause and sit in their homes and wonder, what is Russia going to do? Everybody just has to keep on living their everyday life. So I think part of the, it seems that part of the Slavic mindset 
as far as we've seen, is like, you can say whatever you want to say, but we'll believe you when you do something. And so for now, we can read the news and and we can hear what might happen, but as long as nothing is actually happening, we just have to keep living our lives. And President Zelensky here, the Ukrainian president, he has really like been putting out the message to people, don't panic, don't panic. Russia wants you to panic. And so, I don't know, I think our moms might be panicking. <laughs> but we're trying not to panic. It just, at this point, everybody I talk to, at least in our community, yeah. is not panicking. We're just living our lives and trying to be wise and trying to be prepared and just kind of waiting to see what will happen. But we can't put life on hold. We have to keep living. It just feels like it's like normal Ukrainian life with a bit of an edge. Just, you know, we're preparing for, you know, trying to get more house parents into side A of the duplex, planning to take our team to the Black Sea all together in in the summertime, planning for our kids to finish the school year out strong, you know, making just our normal plans. But then in the back of our mind, we also have to have the plan of, or Russia could invade and... All of that that might go to pot. Like, who knows? But, um, yeah, it's hard to... It's just always in the back of your mind. It's just always... It's just always there, an edge on life. We already know people from our church that are heading to Western Ukraine just to wait it out already. I, I On Friday, I sent out our newsletter and said, no, everything is fine. Like, we're not worried. And then on Saturday night, the pastor of church here called a Zoom meeting and was asking every single family, like, what is your plan? What is your plan? Do you have a plan? And I thought, I felt a lot better yesterday when I thought everybody was just ignoring this. <laughs> but it is the time when everybody does you need to have a plan. You yeah. need to have a plan. Yeah. So what are we doing? When there was the first troop buildup and it seemed serious back in November, uh, we met with our team and, and we just started to formulate a plan. And, and at that point, it was phase one of our plan, which was everybody needs to get all their documents together. So we started with getting all our documents, copies of them, photos of them, making sure that... Um, you know, they had the international passport ready. If if we need to move, that was the first thing. And keep them in one place so they're all ready. Because sometimes doing documents can take a long time here. Uh, so that was the first thing. The next phase will be to um, actually have bags packed kind of at the ready if, if we need to leave, if it becomes unsafe here. Um, while those things are in place, that kind of next step planning. Uh, we're making the homestead as uh, self-sustaining as possible. I had a five-year plan uh, for a lot of these things, um, just self-sustaining should you lose electricity or, you know, in the future, if we have people that are um, on oxygen or require more intensive ongoing medical uh, care, we wanted to have some of those things in place. If you lose heating or electricity or... Which we do. Which lose we electricity. do. We do a lot. Um right. So, uh, so yeah, we're, we're needing to buy a few generators, um, just a, a few uh, solar things, some solar panels and solar water heating, uh, just to reduce the amount of energy needed to consume to, you know, keep the baths going. And when you have, 
when you have people that are in pampers that, that aren't able to control um, some of their bodily functions, um, it helps to keep them clean and safe. And that's also just, it's just normal life. Well, plus Anton loves his evening soak in the tub. Yeah. And if he can't have it, he gets pretty grumpy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, yeah. but we really, we want to keep our boys' lives yeah. as steady as possible. Yeah. And like, I, I don't want to live without water yeah. or without electricity. And so, I mean. So emergencies happen, you got to <laughs> plan for them. And so our emergency planning and prepping has taken a step up a bit. Um so yeah, we just want to have you know enough electricity to be able to run the pumps for our wood boiler system, uh, and charge a phone, keep a few lights on, generators we can turn on when it's time to cook or time to run the bath for the big pumps to the wells. Stocking up on gas and diesel, um, we bought medications for the next I think three months, so we have a because that can be hard a lot. Sometimes you have to order from out of the country or whatever to get the kind of medications you need. Um, and uh, we're working to have a month's worth of non-perishable food on hand. So I feel like we're living the life of a preppers. <laughs> <laughs> you now. guys don't know that we have an underground bunker. Yeah. <laughs> well, now you do know. We've got an underground bunker with flashlights. And <laughs> no, we don't actually have that. But <laughs> um, we should. Uh, that should be phase four. Well, we have our cellar. <laughs> we do have a cellar, but it's scary and it gets water inside of it. Yeah, when the water table goes up high, you get a little bit of water. And in there. there's only room for like five people in there. Yeah. yeah. It's super dark. Our plan is to um to stay because we can have everything we need and sometimes going is actually more dangerous. Um and something to know about Ukrainians is when there's crisis, when there's challenge, Ukrainian culture is to pull together and to help each other and and Knowing that about the culture gives me um, and gives us confidence uh, that should it become more difficult here, Ukraine people are going to pull together and 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 help each other, and um, and that's beautiful. Something really beautiful about this culture. Um, and so, if that's the case, and we can be here safely, we can access um, food and keep warm and keep communication open. Those are really important. We have water because we've got wells and everything. And um, uh, as long as we can keep those in place, we, we're going to stay um, and keep a, a sense of normalcy for our guys. This is a therapeutic place for them to be. That's our current plan. Yeah. It's no small thing to move our boys. Mm-hmm. Like if I think about having to flee or something mm-hmm. with our boys, I think... That would be very, very... I mean, it's disruptive for anybody, but if you're dealing with people who, who can't understand what's mm-hmm. going on, it's, it's, it's a lot more disruptive. Uh, and when we think about you know, leaving or going west, or, we're not just thinking about our Johnson family yeah. and our home. Our family is big. You know, we have all our boys, plus we have our team, and, and several people on our team don't have like immediate family this mm. is their family. Mm. And then we have our moms with their sons with disabilities in the city. Mm. And then we have our boys at Romanyev. Like, we can't just think of Jed and Kim and our children. Mm. We have to think, I mean, of course, we have to be wise. And, and the boys, keeping the boys and our children safe is our top priority. But we really don't have the luxury to just think small. We have mm. a big, big, extended, wide-awake family. And we, yeah. we have to be there for each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I keep that. Yeah. 
it's a big decision to leave. We, we, we need to stay as long as we can. And uh, if we need to move, um, we have partners in Germany, uh, Humedica, which is an uh, emergency relief aid um, NGO. They're amazing. Uh, we've worked with them for years, and uh, my parents worked for them for 15 years in Kosovo. And, uh, and so they're, they're dear friends and partners, and they're ready to help in whatever capacity they need they can. Um, and then also uh, a partner church in Germany, they said they're ready to receive us if we have to actually leave the country. Uh, but Ukraine is so big. You know, it's something to think about. It's like there's so much border, there's so much land. It's not like the movies. War takes a, a long time. I shared before in the other episodes of the podcast that our story is a story of saying yes to God. And one thing that I hadn't really gotten to yet, but I plan to in future episodes, is kind of the thing we, one of the things that we've learned over the years is when you say yes to one thing, you say no to the other thing. You can't say yes to everything. You have to make choices. And so when we said yes to bringing our boys out of the institution and becoming their legal guardians, we committed to them for life. And it, and we said no to being able to pick up quickly and go. Because they're our family, and and they're Ukrainian. They're not going to be American. They're Ukrainian. We say yes to our team, to loving our team and committing to them, because they're also our family. Our boys are Ukrainian, our team is Ukrainian, and we are committed to being here with them. So I hope this gives you a little peace of mind, a little bit more understanding of what it's like to be here right now, how we're preparing and planning. Mom... Hope you feel better after listening to this. <laughs> uh, so just, we would appreciate it if you would pray for us. We will keep you updated in our emails. If you're not on our email list, you can go to wideawakeinternational.org and sign up. I send out updates every Friday. And, and we'll be sure to let you know if our situation here changes so that you'll know how to pray and how to help if we need it. If you would like to know more about the Euromaidan Revolution of Dignity, there's an amazing documentary on Netflix called Winter on Fire. It's really well done. And it really, I feel, can it shows the heart of Ukrainian people. Yeah, if, you, if you don't already love Ukraine, you'll fall in love with Ukraine after watching this documentary. It'll make you want to cheer Ukraine on even harder. Yeah. So thank you for all your love, all your support. Thank you for checking in. Thank you for letting us know that you're praying for us. It really is an encouragement to us when we hear from people that were in your thoughts and in your prayers. In times like this, it feels like we're very, very far away from our former life. But there's nowhere else we'd rather be. So thank you for joining us on this journey. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Well, my first special guest. (laughs) I am special. (laughs) You're very special. All right. Talk to you next time. Bye.